It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Foreign-born fighters have served in America's armed forces since the war that led to the country's founding. And until recently, military service was a straightforward route to citizenship. These days, though, it's getting less and less straightforward. And the pandemic has robbed sports fans of their favorite entertainment just in their hour of need. How will matches come back? How will the players be kept safe? And how long will there be mannequins in the stands? First up, though. Carbon emissions have plummeted as planes have been grounded and industrial activity wound down. It's not the first time this has happened. The global financial crisis had the same effect. At the time, environmentalists saw opportunity. A green-minded recovery could set the planet on a safer path. Those hopes were quickly dashed, though. Economies and emissions bounced back. But this time around, the world is better placed to seize an unexpected moment. The COVID-19 crisis has already had a quite a remarkable impact on emissions, actually. A study that came out last week found that between January and April, global CO2 emissions dropped by 8.6%. Katrine Braig is The Economist's environment editor. And when you look at what this could look like by the end of the year, which several groups have, you find expectations that for all of 2020 globally, emissions will be somewhere between 4 and 7 or 8% lower than anticipated. And we've got two estimates at 7 to 8%. So I think we can assume something at the higher end of that. So that sounds enormously significant. I mean, how do you see that playing out when, when the pandemic begins to wind down? Is, is there a, a chance to, to build on those, those drops? 8% for one year is actually really quite a large drop. It's roughly half of what America emits in an entire year. And it's also the largest drop since the Second World War. So in one sense, 8% is quite a lot. In another, it's not that much. And the context there is that if economies start to pick up, that 8% could be wiped out immediately. And the other way of looking at it is if we want to have a decent chance of meeting the Paris Agreement's most ambitious target of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade, then we need to cut emissions by 8% roughly every year for the next decade. So all this sounds positive, but it it does seem that hitting those kinds of targets and getting the economy going again are, are necessarily going to be in conflict. The thing to know is that we've actually been here before, although slightly to a lesser degree. So after the last global financial crisis in 07, 08, 09, 
emissions also dropped then as a result of the turn down in economic and industrial activity. The drop was quite a bit lower at the time. I think it was about 1.3% in 2009 compared to the previous year. And that caused some people to say, could we profit from this opportunity? Could we turn this around and actually start the transition towards a low to no carbon economy? But unfortunately, that didn't happen because as soon as 2010 had come to pass, emissions were right back up and growing faster, in fact, than they had before. So once again, in the last few weeks, we've seen people say that this is a golden opportunity that needs to be seen. So now is the time to finally make this transition to a more sustainable economy. And they have good reason to say that. The world today is a very different place to where it was 10 years ago. How, how do you mean? What's, what's fundamentally different on, this, on that, that transition score? Well, on a number of measures, technologically and from an energy standpoint, the last decade has really been the decade of renewables. The cost of producing electricity from solar and wind has plummeted. The cost of making electric vehicles and electric cars has also dropped. Politically, we're in a very different position. Don't forget, in 2015, we had the Paris Agreement, which has committed nearly 200 governments to tackling climate change and to keeping global warming to less than two degrees C. As a result of the Paris Agreement, all of those governments have had to give some thought to how they themselves will curb their emissions. So although the plans aren't necessarily all very detailed, there has been some thinking about how we do this transition. And finally, public opinion is in a very different place. A majority of people see climate change as a crisis that is as important as the pandemic. And a large proportion believe that governments should make action on climate change an important part of their financial rescue as well. So how to do that? How to write these hopes into law as these stimulus bills are are being made? I don't think the approach necessarily, what's needed, has changed markedly from before the pandemic. So we still need a phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies The collapse of oil prices potentially means that now is a good time to do that. We still need a massive increase in the amount of electricity that is generated from renewable sources. We need a massive electrification of society in general. We need more people driving electric cars. We need more people on public transportation. And again, we also still need an investment in green R&D, particularly for uh, technologies and methods for sucking large amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and into the ground. Some of those, by the way, are very low tech. We're talking about um, restoring ecosystems and planting trees. So all of those things are still needed. Um, The thing that's different today is that whereas six months ago, environmental economists were saying all of these things are needed and it's on the background of an economy which is functioning relatively well, the world is now in a position where Governments are going to be investing in economies. And so what the environmental economists are saying now is rather than putting that money into extending the shelf life of the fossil fuel industry, instead switch it towards these sustainable industries, towards these sustainable projects. And frankly, do what you said you were going to do as, uh, as part of the Paris Agreement, transition to a low to no carbon economy. I mean, that, that's, that's easy enough to say, but one of the big concerns that, that governments will have is, is dealing with an enormous number of unemployed people as a, as a result of the pandemic. 
Yes. And in fact, one of the arguments is that that is also a golden opportunity. So a lot of these projects, the renewables, retrofitting buildings so they're more energy efficient, etc., need are very labor intensive, especially at the beginning when you get them off the ground. So unemployment levels that are extremely high actually potentially could work in the favor of the transition. But to be frank, governments have, uh, have have sort of dropped the ball on this before, given opportunities of this sort before, and a lot of these messages are are are, are another version of what what was being bandied around before the pandemic. Do you do you sincerely believe that the opportunity this presents will actually be seized this time? Any reason for hope there? Unfortunately, I think your skepticism is probably warranted, and what I'd say is that it is too early to say at this point. What we're seeing right now is that governments are really focused on the rescue of the economy. So it's what happens next. Early signs, I'd say, are pulling in both directions. We're seeing new coal-fired power stations being built in China. That's obviously not ideal. President Trump seems to be jumping on the opportunity to help coal and oil companies and possibly hinder the renewable sector On the other hand, in Europe, there is a real acceptance and endorsement of this message, this idea of the transition post-COVID. France has put strings to parts of its bailouts. They've said that Air France can basically only have taxpayer money if it scraps various routes that compete with train lines that are run on nuclear power. And in Britain, Boris Johnson announced that there would be a big rollout of electric vehicle charging stations across the country. So you're sort of seeing these things happening in both directions. How it all settles is, I think it's too soon to say. But but even with that kind of uncertainty, what's your view on the the likelihood that the the world will meet the Paris Agreement targets, the the 1.5 degrees of warming? The 1.5 degrees C has always looked like an extremely difficult target to hit. But also in the Paris Agreement is this sort of higher target of no more than 2 degrees C. And to hit that, Emissions need to drop by, I think it's more like 2% every year for the next decade. So given what's happened in the last few months, and if politicians really get on board this idea of a sustainable transition, a sustainable recovery, I think there is just about a hint of hope that we might be able to hit the two-degree target. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. If you want to hear more about how the pandemic is affecting the energy market's transition to renewables, listen to the latest episode of Babbage, our sister podcast on science and technology, available wherever you listen. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's Memorial Day today, when Americans honor those who have lost their lives in military service. We are here today to pay tribute to those who have given their lives that liberty may survive in the world. Until freedom has risen up in every land, 
we shall maintain our vigil to make sure that our sons who died on foreign fields shall not have died in vain. And if words cannot repay the debt we owe these men, surely with our actions, we must strive to keep faith with them and with a vision that led them to battle and a final sacrifice. Many of the men and women who will be mourned today were immigrants. Those born abroad have long fought in America's armed forces. Military service was, for a long time, a clear path to American citizenship. But that is no longer the case. Immigrants have been an important part of the military since before America was even a country. Rosemary Ward is New York correspondent for The Economist. In 1813, law permitted non-citizens to become citizens when they enlisted. During the Civil War, the Union virtually recruited immigrants as soon as they landed, granting citizenship upon military discharge. And since 1952, during peacetime, immigrants could apply for citizenship after one year of honorable service. And during wartime, they could naturalize almost immediately after signing up. So there's this long history, but this avenue is now no longer assured. In what way? What's changing? So in order for this naturalization process to even begin, the Department of Defense has to sign this certificate. It's like an honorable service certification form. And without it, the Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency would not even consider the applicant. But the Department of Defense has adopted much stricter vetting. And as a result, it's become near impossible for a service member to be naturalized quickly. This switch actually began under the Obama administration, but under the Trump administration in October 2017, the Department of Defense adopted even stricter vetting. And so what what do you mean by stricter vetting then? What's become more strict? To get that honorable certification form, the Department of Defense has to sign off on it. And usually it's the commanding officer of a recruit, but it's become really difficult for those recruits to get that form signed. In fact, six active duty service members and the American Civil Liberties Union, which is an advocacy group, filed a a class action suit last month against the Department of Defense. According to the suit, it can take multiple requests to get that honorable certification form. And when one service member, Private Sama, who enlisted in 2018 and is actually deployed in South Korea at the moment, when he finally did get that honorable certification form after multiple requests, immigration rejected it because his officers had not filled it out properly. It's not just impeding his path to citizenship. It means that he can't get security clearance for certain military work. And he's not alone. Scarlett Kim, who's an ACLU attorney, said that thousands of service members are having these same difficulties. So it's not as if the requirements themselves have changed. It just seems the system is a bit gummed up and making it harder for people just to go through that same process. Exactly. That extra vetting means that there was a more than 70% drop in naturalization applicants from the armed forces. Because if they can't get that certification form, they can't get the next form and the next form. It's a, it's a paper trail problem. The lawsuit claims that the servicemen would have been naturalized quicker if they had just taken the usual civilian route, which is admittedly a lengthier one than the military one. And their applications are actually being rejected at a higher rate than civilian ones. Margaret Stock is a retired lieutenant colonel who I spoke with, and she's now an immigration lawyer. And she said that some soldiers are already being placed in deportation proceedings before their application process has been completed. So it just blows the mind that the same government that they volunteered to fight for is trying to get rid of them. And so is there any suggestion that people had decided to serve explicitly for that route to citizenship? I think some probably 
it, it factored into their decision to sign up. America is one of the few countries that even allows this. The French Foreign Legion, they allow some of their legionnaires to apply for French citizenship after three years. Russia has a fast track path for citizenship for some of their non-Russians. But America is fairly unique. And the irony of not letting immigrants become citizens is without them, the army would have failed to meet its goals nearly every year between 2002 and 2013. So the ranks then of non-citizens are not just a, a kind of nice to have, a bit of extra help. These are absolutely integral to the armed services operations. Absolutely. The Department of Defense found in 2016 that non-citizens tend to be of higher quality than their citizen counterparts. They perform better, they have lower attrition rates, and are more likely to have skills that the military needs like medical and IT expertise as well as linguistic diversity. You know, They are absolutely essential to the military. So what will happen with this trend then? Is there a chance the Department of Defense will go back on this, well, lengthening the paper trail, if not changing the actual requirements? It's a tricky one. The lawsuit is being fast-tracked, so we may actually have a ruling in the next few months, which would be great. It might help those already on the path of citizenship get back on it. But I fear until there's an actual change at the Department of Defense, the highest levels, non-citizens are out of luck. And the sad thing is, these new policies don't make the country safer. They harm military recruitment, they hurt military readiness, and they prevent the United States from utilizing talented residents, immigrants or not. Rosemary, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. The Summer Olympics in Tokyo, the Euro 2020 football tournament, cricket's T20 World Cup. This year was meant to be packed with sporting events, but pretty much the entire global calendar of sport has been wiped clear by the pandemic. For rabid fans and for the industry itself, it's been devastating. But as restrictions have eased, matches are starting to happen again with quite a few changes. In the last few weeks, things have been starting to return to a version of normal in countries where lockdowns have been eased earlier, such as Korea and Taiwan. Matches have been going on for a few weeks now. But in Europe, it was only really the return of the Bundesliga, which is Germany's domestic football league, which heralded a return of sport for fans. Bo Franklin is The Economist's assistant news editor. Matches have been going ahead behind closed doors without any spectators. And this has been for the safety of both fans and athletes as well. But it's created a few strange situations. What do you mean? What, what kind of situations? So when the Bundesliga restarted in Germany, the loudest sounds that teams would have heard would have been their own players, coaches on the sidelines and the blasts of referees' whistles. And in Asia, where sports have been resuming for the last few weeks now, organisers have turned to some strange replacements for spectators. In South Korea's Domestic Football League, they've been piping in crowd noises to stadiums. And they've even put mannequins in the stands. One team in South Korea's Domestic Football League was accused of using mannequins from a sex doll manufacturer in the stands, complete with signs for X-rated websites on the mannequins. And in Taiwan, the local baseball league has taken to putting cardboard spectators in the stands, including printouts of fans' faces on those spectators. This is something that German teams have been turning to as well. Fans can pay to have themselves stuck onto the fake spectators, so it's almost like they're there. 
So certainly the spectators are protected then from, from the risks, but what about the players themselves? How, how is that being handled? Well, organisers are putting a lot of precautions into place to keep both players and other staff as safe as possible. The obvious things are masks being used when they're not on the pitch, equipment such as footballs are being disinfected, but playing any kind of match still brings a huge number of people together. For a televised rugby union match, for example, World Rugby, the organising body, says that at least 174 people are needed, including water carriers, players and camera crews. And so this means that players are kind of existing in bubbles almost. In Germany, their football teams are being tested for the coronavirus several times a week, and any that are found positive have to be isolated and quarantined from their teammates. But what about the effect of all of this on the the huge industries that many of these sports represent? KPMG estimates that Europe's five biggest national football leagues stand to lose 4 billion euros if they don't return to play soon. But if they do return to play behind closed doors, the losses will still be about 20 to 30% of that. Bigger leagues tend not to rely on match day sales, so that's tickets, pints, merchandise, that kind of thing. England's Premier League in the 2018 season only relied on it for about 14% of their income. But smaller leagues with smaller audiences on TV rely on matchday sales much more, which for some leagues could be an absolute disaster if they're operating on fine margins. And what have fans been doing in the meantime when all these matches have been cancelled? We have seen some unlikely interests from broadcasters in smaller sports and smaller leagues that have restarted already. So... Taiwan's Baseball League, for example, is being broadcast for American fans who can't watch any domestic games. And South Korea's Domestic Football League is being broadcast by the BBC in Britain for the first time. John Book 1, Suwon 0. Listen to that. Surreal silence. When has a victory in the opening game of a season ever been met with that kind of silence? But for the meantime, the, the silver lining here is that people who really want to see some sport can, or, or is it still too odd even, even then? For now, sports-hungry fans seem glad to have fixtures back in any form, even if that means in empty stadiums, without spectators and a bit of a weird atmosphere. The first Bundesliga fixtures after the break had their biggest ever international audiences. But if this situation is going to go on for the foreseeable future and live spectators can't return... Is it going to put fans off in the long term to watch games with less of an atmosphere, possibly fake fans in the crowds permanently, crowd noise being piped in? Is that going to be too unsettling? And could it put fans off for good? Bo, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. That's all from us on The Intelligence. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.